You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. talk about movies television records or all of the above a little bit of of all the above i mostly want to concentrate on beyond the valley of the dolls but you've written so many great things that i do want to ask you about a couple other things if that's all right sure absolutely absolutely no problem well just to get kind of a baseline i was wondering did you grow up in a musical family not really no my parents they enjoyed music they went to uh broadway musicals and uh uh, an occasional concert, but, uh, you know, they enjoyed music, but they weren't a musical family, you know. They didn't play anything or, or my, well, actually, my mother played piano when she was a kid, yeah. But that was it, you know. Well, how did you get into it? I got into it very late. Most, a lot of people my in my profession, everything else, started in when they were like five, six years old or something, playing piano or playing some instrument. But I actually uh, had no interest whatsoever in music till I got to almost 13 years old. And I only reason I got interested is because there was a little red-headed girl that sat in front of me in class, and I was very shy. And I, she volunteered for an after-school piano lessons for, I think it was 50 cents a lesson. And I put up my hand and said, oh, great, I'll volunteer too, you know. And so I did, and oh, about a half a dozen kids did, and after about three weeks, there was only one left, and that was me. <laughs> it got me interested. I just suddenly, like, just like, oh, wow, I like this, you know. So I came home, told my mother and father that I have, you know, a teacher uh, who's going to give me piano lessons, and, and she charges 50 cents a lesson. And they said, well, we can afford more than that. <laughs> And I said, well, you know, that's all, you know, anyway, they talked to her and what I, I really don't remember, but they paid her a little more than 50 cents. And I took some piano lessons. And then that's that particular summer after having about, oh, I don't know, five months of lessons or something like that, six months of lessons, I went to Vermont to, to spend two months of the summer on a farm as part of my summer experience, you know, and uh, there was a piano there, and I decided to uh, study this uh, Rachmaninoff C-sharp minor prelude, which was about a hundred times more difficult than what I could do, but I did, I went at it, and I didn't care, and I learned it one bar at a time, and I came back, and then uh, it was time for high school, and I said, well, I'm going to take a test for music and art high school in New York City, and my uh, parents said, oh, you're going to go for art, because at that time I kind of like was a hobby, I was an artist, and I said, no, no, I'm going to take the music test, and they thought I was crazy, you know, like I took piano for six months, you know, and uh, so I went, and I played, and I sat down, and I played this Rachmaninoff prelude, and all I can say is I didn't hit any wrong notes, but like, was it a performance? Hardly. And lo and behold, weeks later, I got accepted to music and art high school as for music. And uh, when I got to the school, I uh, met the teacher who had given the exam. He was a trumpet teacher, taught, taught brass instruments. And I said to him, now that I knew a little more about music and everything, I said to him, you know, I really 
why did you put, put pass me? I said, I really was pretty bad. You know, I said, I didn't play that piece very well. I said, you know, I didn't hit any wrong notes, but I didn't play it very He says, because I looked at you and I said, anybody who has that much ambition to try to play something that difficult without the ability to play it has really got an interest in music. And he said, that's the kind of people we like. (laughs) So it was kind of one of the, I'm sure there's a lot of pianists that didn't get in that (laughs) could play rings around me, you know. Anyway, that's how I got started in music. Now, were you a multi-instrument? Well, once you got to music and art high school, uh, almost everybody who got in on music got in on piano or voice. Very few people got in on other instruments, and they had uh, uh, several orchestras, uh, and they were very good orchestras. And so everybody had to take up an instrument, and I took up clarinet. And I played it actually better than I played piano in those days. And But that's it. Uh uh, being a composer and orchestrator and everything, an arranger and everything else, obviously I, I know how to play all the other instruments, but I don't physically play them, you know. Uh, yeah, but I, I know how to play them. I want to know, how did you get involved with doing uh, composing? And was it initially for the movies, or did you do other things before that? Composing was never something I was ever interested in. Uh, I always wanted to be an arranger, I kind of had, had a fascination for taking uh, songs and uh, other pieces and making my own arrangements of it. And um, I met with a gentleman named Morton Gould, who you may know the name or not, I don't know, uh, and uh, who is a, an arranger plus uh, uh, one of America's great composers. And uh, when I was actually uh, graduating high school, I met with him. And uh, asked him, I said, I wanted to take a ranging lesson. He says, I don't teach, I don't do anything. But he says, you have access, I'll give you access to my library. And you can look at all the arrangements and then listen to the records when you get home. And uh, that was basically what I wanted to be. Never had much ambition to be a composer. Then came out to California, tried to pursue becoming an arranger and didn't have a lot of success, ended up playing piano in bars <laughs> and uh, in California for about three years, then went uh, back to New York because I got drafted and uh, went in the army band, and which I, where I played some clarinet again. <laughs> and um, uh, then uh, ended up playing piano for the Fort Dix band that was doing a television show, the Arlene Francis television show in New York City. And uh, so I did, I was the pianist, and finally I was the arranger for the band. (laughs) And I got to do some things that I wanted to do. And then I got shipped overseas to Japan for 10 months and formed my own band over there. I was in the band, but I formed my own traveling band around Japan, and we gave a lot of concerts. And once again, I was writing arrangements for these concerts. And they were basically kind of like jazz-oriented concerts. And then let me see. Well, I came back, and then I started to become an accompanist, went on the road with some singers, including Chris Connor, a jazz singer, and Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Rogers, and occasionally would write arrangements for him for the shows. Then a sudden, just kind of went into the record business because I got married and needed to make a better living. <laughs> and uh, somebody got me into a uh, Enoch Lights uh, record company, and I was working there in New York. Then somebody asked me if I wanted to, if I was interested in joining Colpix Records to be an A&R man there. It's a long story. I would be uh, an endless story to tell you how that whole thing evolved. But uh, to cut to the chase, uh, I went to work at uh, Colpix Records on a monthly basis. And um, obviously, with still records that I was making, I was arranging. So I was doing what I set out to do. And the composing just became sort of a... um, 
Uh, I had always loved film music and was a big movie buff and went there and really appreciated all the scores, but I just never thought about composing, even though I had gone to music and, uh, to uh, Eastman School of Music and I had taken composition there and some and orchestration and conducting and other things. But the composition I took was just like kind of like, well, I got to take something, you know. <laughs> so I'll take composition. And my composition teacher wasn't very happy with me because everything I wrote sounded like Percy Faith or Dave Rose or somebody <laughs> in the pop music business. And, you know, it didn't make him very happy. But he couldn't flunk me because what I did wasn't bad. <laughs> It just wasn't quite what he had in mind, you know. Uh, so um, actually, my composing stuff started when I was an A&R man at Coldfix Records. I had a big number one record called Blue Moon with the Marcells, and I became very, in New York City, kind of like a, hey, you know, not a famous, okay? I was well-known. Colpix, a uh, gentleman, had made an independent movie called Mad Dog Cole, and uh, he brought it to Columbia Pictures um, to uh, for distribution, and they decided that they would take the movie over, but it didn't have a score. So he said the man was in the real estate business, the producer in New Jersey, and he had no idea about any, any of this stuff. And the director had done the picture director was Bert Balaban and he had done the picture and left and he had no interest in it. And, um, so they said, well, you know what, there's a bright music guy down at Colpix records down on the seventh floor. They said, and, uh, why don't we send you down there? He probably could recommend who you get or what you do, you know, to do the uh, film. Said, oh, thank you so much. You know, and so um, they had built me up, you know, to him. Uh, and he came down and, and I came in the office and he said, I've got this movie and everything else. And he says, so they told me that you could recommend what I should do about music for the movie or who you could recommend to write the music. And I don't know, for some reason, I just sat there in kind of like a, <laughs> a puzzled thing in my mind. And I said to myself, well, you know, I, I could probably write the music for the music. And he was so excited that I said I'd do it because they had they had built me up like some, uh, what a great A, and oh, man, he's made hit records and everything. And, and oh, my God, you'll do it. And I had never written a movie before in my life. So uh, I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it, you know. And, and uh, he said, oh, great, this will be fantastic, you know. And then I told Columbia, I said, I'm going to do the music. And they said, oh, that's wonderful. So <laughs> it was a B movie. And it starred, it, the two people who started it are completely no, went nowhere. But the three co-stars in it were unbelievable. It was Telly Savalas. Vincent Gardenia and Jerry Orbach. Yeah, those were the three secondary people in the movie. These were all their first movies. Anyway, uh, I wrote this movie to a stopwatch <laughs> and with a friend of mine from the ad business who I went to music and art high school with. He was in the booth for me. And I did this whole picture by a stopwatch without a music editor or anything else under the sun. And with all the films and TV I've done... That thing still is as good as anything I ever did. And I got kind of peaked at that point, and I said, oh, gee, you know what? This is fun. <laughs> so anyway, I got lucky and got two more number one records as a produ you know, produced for Cold Picks. And, and, of course, at that time, now my contract had to get renegotiated because there was no way I was going to stay with that company. Everybody wanted me. Everybody company said oh we'll make you a killer deal and everything and uh, so cold pick said okay we got to make them a deal so they sent this high shot high guy from hollywood into the back to new york to deal with me name was Joni taps he sat down and he talked to me and everything else now he knew i did the mad dog cold movie because when they uh, finalized the stuff they sent the film out to california uh, and uh, the head of the music department, George Dooning, who is a composer, film composer, uh, they said, would you take a look at this and make sure the score is okay and we don't have to replace it, you know? 
And so he sat down and he listened to it. He said, hey, the score is fine. And not only that, he sent me a letter back in New York to tell me how much he liked the score and how good a job it was, you know. So anyway, this Joni Taps guy who obviously he was from the music division up at Columbia. He knew what George Dooning had said. And uh, so when he came and he was negotiating with me, the, the one thing that film companies don't like to do is put up money in front. You know, <laughs> they like to give you the back end of everything, you know, if you ever get it. So they were trying to figure out any way they could not to have to give me a lot of money up front. So one of the Joni was a very clever guy, and he said to me, uh, uh, we heard that score you did for Mad Dog Cole, and he said, boy, George thought it's really great. you got a really free, good future there. He said, supposing we give you a three-picture deal at Columbia, guaranteed, pay or play. And, oh, wow. And I said, well, I'm not going to make a deal with a bunch of B-movies, you know, instead of getting my money. <laughs> So they said, oh, no, guaranteed these will be star, starring vehicles with stars, big stars. So I said, oh, oh, okay. So I talked it over with my attorney, who happened to be my brother at that time. And I said, what do you think? And he says, well, you know, it's up to you. I said, wow, it's a hell of an opportunity to get into film composing, you know, pay or play, you know. So um, uh, I said, okay. And I made the deal, and uh, I, the first movie I did was with Danny Kaye, so I couldn't possibly say that, uh, hey, you're giving me a, you know, a bad movie. However, it turned out not to be one of Danny Kaye's better. It was his last movie, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was his last feature film. After that, he did a couple of uh, featured roles, but it wasn't his films, you know. I think he did The Mad Woman of Cheyenne. Yeah, and it wasn't basically a Danny Kaye movie. He had a part in it. But this was the last Danny Kaye movie that was made, so I couldn't argue with them. And then the next movie was with all these teenage stars, Ride the Wild Surf, and I couldn't argue with that because they were all these Kip Fabian and everybody. They were all hits, you know, records people. And the third movie was with um, James Coburn. You know, who had just been doing all the In Like Flint movies, so I, I had no complaint, you know. Because uh, one of my hit records was with Shelley Fabre, who was on the Donna Reed show, and the, and the Donna Reed show and Screen Gems basically paid for their sessions. The producer of the Donna Reed show said to me, Hey, how, we don't have a regular composer on this show, we just kind of. It's kind of a, you know, composer of the month that we use on the show. But how would you like to be the regular composer? So I said, hey, great. So then I had the Donna Reed show, which led to doing a lot of Gidget uh, episodes and a few other Screen Gems uh, shows and doing the films at Columbia and being an A&R man at Cold Peaks Records. So I was a little busy. <laughs> Went to work every day to make produce records, and then twice a month I did uh, sessions on the Donna Reed show, and then for six weeks I would work on one of the movies, you know. Basically, that's how I got into uh, scoring movies and television. How did you get involved with the monkeys? I really don't know. Bert Schneider, who was uh, one, and Rafelson were the producers of that thing, and Bert Schneider, I had a big, messy deal with Colpix that got... Uh, very out of hand, very messy deal. They uh, renegotiated a newer contract when Donnie Kirchner came in. And um, uh, I was at that time at Capitol Records as an independent producer made doing the Holly Rich Springs. And so they wanted to get me back to Cold Picks. And so I went back to Cold Picks. And then the new president of Cold Picks came in, and he and I didn't see eye to eye. If it was rainy, I said it was sunny. If it was rainy, I said it was rainy. He said it was sunny. It was one of those kind of relationships. And he finally said something to the people at Screen Gems who basically were the, uh, who he reported to from Cold Picks Records. And, and he said, I, either he goes, or I, I can't work with this guy. And uh, so finally they bought out, I, I was six months into a three-year contract, and they bought out the rest of my contract. And uh, the guy who 
who made me go was Bert Schneider of the of the Schneiders of Columbia, Abe Schneider and forgot his brother's name. And um and that was it. And then all of a sudden I got a call a year later or something from Bert Schneider who had fired me and he said, Would you like to do the monkeys? I said, You sure you're talking to the right guy? I said, Did you make a mistake? You fired me a year ago. He says, Hey, it's business, nothing personal. <laughs> he says, I just think you're the right guy for the monkeys because you've been in the record business. The, guy, the monkeys respect your name. They know you've, you know, not that I was making records with the monkeys. That was not my uh, uh, thing. That was, you know, uh, Donnie Kirshner and his gang were do, making the records with the monkeys. But they said, at least whatever has to get done on the stuff, they'll have respect for you because they. You know, they know who you are, they know your name, and plus you've done uh, Screen Gems, uh, a lot of Screen Gems TV shows, and you know how we work around here, you know, as cheap as can be, which they were. And they said, Lord, well, who am I to say no, you know? I said yes, and I did the monkeys for two years and did all the shows except the uh, Flattened Scruggs with two episodes of with Flattened Scruggs and uh, a double episode in London for, for some particular reason. I have no, I still to this day don't know why they hired Hugo Montenegro to do those two episodes. I, I I have no idea why. It was the biggest shock with my music editor said, oh, by the way, Stu, you're not doing those two London episodes Hugo Montenegro is saying. Yeah, and then after he did those two, right back to me again. So I have no, I, these people are strange people. But uh, that's how I did the monkeys. It was just out of the clear blue. The guy who fired me hired me. When it comes, and this might sound a little nerdy, but when it comes to writing, like you've written so many amazing themes to shows. And when it comes to, to doing that, are you writing like a full-fledged song that you know is going to be cut down to like what 30 seconds or something or how are you doing this no. like say say Battlestar Galactica Galactica how did you come up with something like that well uh, uh, the main titles were basically uh, uh, timed out to a certain time yeah and the same thing with Knight Rider I know they had uh, made a cut of the main titles on that. They recut a bit after that. I did the music because they felt like some things had fallen better with the, you know. But basically, when I wrote the music, I tried to write it so that there was catching things that were on the screen. But a lot of uh, they recut some of it after our, after the fact. Uh, but no, uh, they were conceived to be in a certain time period. It wasn't cut down. Yeah, I did do shortened versions for for like, uh, in other words, the the movie version was a longer main title than the television version, you know. Yeah, so I did. I recorded uh, uh, one time one version and then version two, you know, which uh, which for many movies um, composers uh, when they did have main titles, they don't anymore, you know. Uh, they just have 10 minutes of end credits that go on interminably, uh, thanking the, uh, the guy who parked the cars in the parking lot, you know, they just getting out of hand. But, uh, when they used to have main titles, you know, uh, composers always would write several, several lengths of main title. You know, they write a shortened length, a longer length, because sometimes they might want to shorten it or lengthen it. And, and rather than have some guy cutting up the music, they'd rather make two or three different timings, you know, and write it so that it, it was all, uh, it was a protection. It was sort of a protecting your ass so that your stuff didn't sound bad, you know, so you do you do several different uh, lengths of uh, of main titles or end credits or well end credits uh, at those days were pretty much set. Nowadays that they go on so long you can it's three or four or five different pieces of music during end credits. But uh, yeah, then it was the, that way. No, uh, how did I come up with it? Uh, I don't know. That's what composers do. You know, <laughs> you compose. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that time now, I was working for 14 years with Glenn Lawson, which was a whole different story than, uh, you know, working two pictures with Russ Meyer. 
even though there was a lot of similarities, uh, but Russ was a director and Glenn Lawson never directed. He directed one or two th- things, but he basically was a producer, not a director. So it was kind of a different thing. But in, in Gunn's case, there was a lot of input on on title music, you know, on the main title music. And who knows, with Rush, there might have been, had there been a main title, but there wasn't really. You know, the main titles went over the opening killing scene. So there, uh, you know, if there was a main title, maybe Rush would have had more input. Uh, but there wasn't any, so um, his big, as I said, his big thing was over the top. <laughs> that was his, that was his line, still over the top, you know what I mean, you know what I want. So um, I remember in the seven minutes, we had a scene where the two guys or two lawyers are shooting baskets and talking about the case. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, the seven minutes you have. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, the scene they're talking and they're shooting the breeze and the music is playing. Cheer, cheer for old Notre Dame. Da, 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 da. <laughs> And I said to Rush, you want music over the, them shooting? He says, yeah. I said, what do you want? He says, I want some college thing. I want, you know, like, uh, and he sang. Uh, yeah, for a roll I said, you want that? And he said, yeah. And I, I, basically, I thought he was nuts, you know. But, hey, I get paid, you know, <laughs> make a living. Okay, I'll give you that. Then we discovered, oh, and behold, it is in public domain. you got to pay for that song. <laughs> <laughs> and then Fox was saying, are you sure you need this song in this scene? This scene isn't, doesn't call for music. Two guys are talking and shooting baskets. Why is there music? And we have to pay, God, I don't remember what the fee was, but there was a license fee to use that music. So, uh, you know, he, he, as I said, very over the top with with uh, with Russ. Uh, and Glenn had his moments of being over the top, too. Uh, uh, but it was a different thing. But uh, as far as working with Glenn Lawson, he never came to any of my sessions in 14 years except to walk through. He came to the session with the L.A. Los Angeles Philharmonic for three, two or three hours I recorded five days for double sessions for five days, and he showed up only when I did the main title. He said, let me know when you're doing the main title, and he came down to Fox from Universal, and he was there for a couple of hours while I did the main title and add credits and things like that, and then he left, and I never saw him again during the recording sessions. And then when I started you know, doing more and more stuff for Glenn. He never showed up at sessions or anything else. And his only input was to send me, give little notes to the uh, associate producer when we had uh, spotting sessions. And uh, he would give, uh, Glenn gave me a note here. It says, tell Stu in this scene here, I know it's not funny, but I want funny music. And, and in the love scene where they do this thing here, I don't want any love music. <laughs> yeah, I don't want love music in that scene. Do something, anything, but don't give me love. I mean, I get little notes like that from him. But that was his input. But he didn't come to the sessions or anything. And and he rarely, rarely, he rarely threw any of my things out. Occasionally, he. He Q would hit him wrong, and he said, "Ah, not uh, work for me. Doesn't work for me." And uh, you know, and uh, so he'd find something else from the episode and stick it in, and it was always bad. <laughs> and what the hell? <laughs> As I said, you get paid to make a. After a while, you know, being a film, TV composer, you decide this is how I make a living. You know, it's about the same as an accountant sitting down with the with the books every day and doing it. This is what I do. I make a living. You want, you pay me, I'll give you what you want. And you know, if you, if you ever sat down and talked to people like Jerry Goldsmith or, or even John Williams, who is a good friend of mine, they won't put it in the same words, but basically it's about the same thing. Hey, I make a living writing music, you know, this is what you want. I'll give you this. I'll, you know, John is such a soft-spoken and such an ed- well-educated person that 
uh, any any director would be out of his mind not to sit and listen to his input, you know. But in the long run, John does what the producer wants or the director wants, you know, because that's that's how you make a living. And a lot of a lot of very good film composers didn't make, weren't as big as they were could have been because of the fact that they finally said, "I don't I don't need to take this crap anymore." You know, I I grew up during the '70s, and I was a pretty big nerd. So a lot of your work really kind of fueled the soundtrack of my life. So oh. stuff like Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers, and even B.J. and the Bear, oh my Knight God. Rider, yeah, well, and stuff. Yeah, so. I got the B.J. and the Bear, and and, and Sheriff Lobo. Oh yeah, yeah. I did the second season of both of those. I didn't do the first season because I was busy finishing Galactica 1980 and starting Buck Rogers. But yeah, but there came a time where I was doing BJ, Sheriff Lobo, and Knight Rider <laughs> all at the same time. I got to tell you, your theme for Quincy M.E. was just amazing. Yeah, thank you. I love just how, again, kind of crazy it gets with that kind of like breakdown and that almost like New Orleans jazz type breakdown that you do towards the end of it. Yeah, when he's on the boat. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Just that kind of like the, you know, how you answer the ba ba da 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 with that kind of more humorous yeah. breakdown of it. It's so nice. Well, you know, that was that was part of the reason that Glenn Lawson only did a half a dozen episodes of, because uh, uh, um, Jack Klugman uh, considered this a serious show. He wanted to do, he wanted to be a serious actor on this. He didn't want to be a comic or a funny guy. He wanted to be serious, and Glenn wanted this to be lighthearted and, you know, kind of almost comical at times. And Jack didn't want that. And so after, I don't know, I don't remember exactly a whole bunch of episodes, it came down to a uh, Jack Klugman going up to the brass and saying either he goes or I go. Well, being that this was Glenn's show and he was the creator of the show, that was a pretty... You know, but they figured, like, you know what? Glenn Lawson doesn't bring in the audience. Jack Klugman does. They tune in to see Jack Klugman. They don't tune in to see Glenn Lawson's name on the screen. <laughs> they don't even know who the hell he is, you know. Uh, as a result, Glenn was, I hate, I don't use the word fired. I don't know what they I wasn't a fly on the wall there in the room. But somehow they relieved him of the show. And Klugman became a producer, executive producer of the show. And here I was in the middle, and I didn't know what to do here. I had this, you know, because the first show I did for Glenn was Switch. He he gave up that show to another producing people because he, uh, he wanted to uh, do the Quincy thing. And, and I don't know, it was some kind of a political thing with the studio. So I left after doing Switch for a season. I left Switch to go to, with him to Quincy, and now here I got this show that's a hit, <laughs> and suddenly Glenn isn't doing it anymore. So I went to Jack Klugman's office, and I said, "Hi, my name's Stu Phillips, and I'm the composer on the show." He said, "I know who you are." He said, uh, "I said uh, I, Glenn's not doing the show anymore, but I just wondered, do you, are you, what are you going to do about the composing?" He says, "Hey, I'm happy with the music. You can say." He says, "I'm I'm happy to have you on it." He says, "I like the music." So I uh, oh, thank you so much. So I continued on with with uh, Quincy uh, for the uh, first season, and then Glenn, of course, came up with something else for the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. And so he says, okay, I need you for this. you got to stop doing Quincy. Uh, the guy's offering me two new, two shows, you know. And so I gave up Quincy, and, you know, which I was really, very sorry about doing. And the same thing happened with Knight Rider. I did 13, 12, 13 episodes of Knight Rider, and he left Universal, went to 20th Century Fox. And he said, okay, I need you to come over here. i got this show called Fall Guy. And he said, I need you on this show. And I said, but I'm doing Night Rider. He says, well, I just have to leave Night Rider. You know, well, I that was like at episode seven. And I said, the hell with this. And so I did five or six episodes that he didn't even know about. <laughs> I was traveling between Fox and Universal. And I, I did, you know, uh, another five or six episodes 
that he wasn't even producing. And uh, then finally, uh, the, the load got too big for me on Fall Guy, so I had to quit Night Rider. And that would really bother me, because now here was another hit show, you know. But Fall Guy ran five years, so uh, that wasn't bad. And I did 96 or 97 episodes of it, so I can't complain. Did you write the theme for that one, too? No, I had nothing to do with it. Glenn, Glenn wrote a song uh, with a couple of friends of his from the old days, a uh, guy who was in a, one of a group, I can't remember, but when Glenn was a, one of the four preps, this guy came in when one of the preps, uh, one of the original four preps got sick, or I don't remember what happened, but this guy stepped in, and he, David Somerville, and he uh, he stepped in, and Glenn and he became real buddies and friends, and he wrote this song with Glenn, uh, uh, which is a nice song, the Fall Guy song. It's a clever lyric. So it was there when I got when I got over to Fox from Universal. Uh, he already had the the whole song done and finished and recorded and everything with Lee Majors. Yeah. So I had not, no, I had nothing to do with that song. Fall Guy went to a whole bunch of other 20th shows, which unfortunately weren't very successful. And uh, the last thing I did with Glenn was Highway Man, and then he and then he left. Twentieth, uh, the, the network dropped it, and then he left. Twentieth went back independent. Universal picked it up. Only they picked it up on his nickel. In other words, they gave him a budget and said, "That's it. We don't pay any overtime. We don't pay anything else." Because Glenn was very bad at going over budget and overtime and all this. Uh, stuff and so they said we'll do it but that's it we give you the budget and that's it no more money and so um, Highway Man ran a little longer and when Glenn was in charge he suddenly no more orchestra now now he hired a bunch of guys uh, guitar player <laughs> and something and they had like uh, you know three pieces and they overdubbed four times and he did about three or four episodes like that and I wasn't working for him and then I met uh associate producer at a in a restaurant one day and i said how's it going uh with highway man he says uh well okay but we miss your music and i said no yeah nobody's asked me to do it he says well you know glenn doesn't want he can't afford uh big orchestras anymore on this stuff so i said hey if you listen to fall guy you'll discover i did almost nine episodes with synthesizers and it was my choice not his i said uh uh, he said, oh, gee, yeah, that's right, you did. So uh, he talked to Glenn, and next thing I know, I'm doing some episodes of Highway Manic again with synthesizers, yeah. Then he did his last show uh, that he ever did for Universal, which was, uh, I don't know, the Army show about World War II. Ah, I forgot the name of it. They never sold it. They did a two-hour Movie of the Week pilot, backdoor pilot, Road Raiders, yeah. It was originally Rhodes. The guy's name was Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, and it was kind of a, uh, you know, uh, uh, takeoff on Rhodes. So instead of Road Warriors or something like that, it was Rhodes Raiders. But then Universal decided it was too confusing, and they just went with Road Raiders. And... Uh, yeah, and that I did that show. That was the last show I did for him. Actually, that's pretty much the last show I did for television. Period. That was my last uh, hurrah. <laughs> that was my last hurrah, and I think I retired after that. Decided I had enough. Can you tell me a little bit about your book? My book. My book is called Stu Who: Forty Years of Navigating the Minefields of the Music Business, which of course is now sixty years of. <laughs> Navigating the minefields of the music business, uh, and um, I don't know. Have you read it? Do you have it? Or I did read it. Oh. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Oh well, then the most of what I've been telling you, you know already. But that's okay. My audience doesn't know. Oh, it. okay, okay. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, about it, nothing. I just one day, uh, sometime in the early 2000s, I sat down and I was putting together all my records and things that I had done all my life and the music and then trying to 
catalog them all. Computers had come in, and I had finally learned how to use the computers. And um, uh, I was saying, well, maybe I'll make a catalog of all my music and everything I've done in the record business. And and, and I started putting it down. By the time I got done, I had about 25 pages of stuff, you know, remembrances and things. And I said, well, you know, maybe I'll just expand on this and I'll make a book out of it, you know. And so I started writing and then uh, suddenly said, this is serious. I'm going to write a book. So I uh, started writing a book and punt and peck on a computer, you know, Uh, not a typist. Uh, I wrote it and uh, then I got a guy who I was... Some people, oh, I know, I remember what that was. Some people wanted to do a stage show of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. That's right. That's how I met this a guy who ended up editing my book because he was a he had uh, done a lot of book editing uh, before he decided he wanted to be a uh, lyric writer. And they, these people, actors, wanted to do a stage version of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but they couldn't get anybody at Fox to talk to to license it. And they said, maybe you can help. Well, I started making calls. I didn't know anybody at Fox or anything else. Uh, and uh, so I called my brother, my attorney, and uh, I said, you, you got any contacts at Fox? So he, he checked a few people, and he says, yeah, here's one or two names. Try them. And so I gave them to the people, and the, and the people said, these people never return their calls, never recall their letters, their email, nothing. It was like they couldn't get any interest out of it. But anyway, that's how I met this guy who uh, was part of that group. And uh, he wanted to write uh, uh, some songs with me. Then uh, I said I had written this book, but it really needed to be edited. He says, oh, I, I can do that. And so he did. He came over. He says, uh, get me the pay. I said, no, come over to my office here in my house. And I said, you can sit and you do it, but I want to be here while you're editing, you know. I said, I don't want things, you know, I said, I don't want my my natural style or stuff to change. I want this as a conversation between me and whoever's reading the book. And uh, and that's how it went. And a lot of people have said that they enjoy the book because it's more like a conversation than anybody trying to show them how many fancy words they know, you know. So all he did was kind of like he switched he switched some paragraphs around to make them stronger. Yeah, the usual things that editors do and told me where the hell colons go and semicolons go and dashes go. And I still to this day can't quite figure out why something gets a semicolon and something gets a dash, you know. It's still confusing. I mean, I got the basic out of it, but I'm never sure when I do it if I did the right one. Or not. But anyway, uh, wrote it and uh, went to a lot, getting it printed and a whole bit, and uh, and it's there and it's out. And uh, I got 325 copies left, <laughs> and that's it. That's, uh, they're over at a new publisher who took over the publishing. Um, the only thing I insisted was that I keep it on my website. And keep that I can sell auto, you know, personally autographed copies on my website, and they agreed to that, and so I still sell it on my website. And but they're now the publishers of the book, and um, uh, that's about it. Like I said, there's 316 copies I think left that haven't been sold out of the original printing. So it's the best place for people to pick it up on your website. Really, truthfully, yeah. Because they'll get an autographed copy, personally autographed, if they want, with their with their name on it. Uh, because uh, my copies come out of my my office here, not from the publisher. Yeah, I got to tell you, by the time I went to go to a publisher, and the publisher gets it to me, and I got to get the book. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I, uh, either a messenger has to come over with the book, or they got to put it in the mail, which is ridiculous expenditure of four dollars five dollars to mail it to me and then i gotta mail it back to them and then they mail it out i mean it's just stupid it's just idiotic so i said i'll keep some copies here and that's it and you know 
uh, and they'll sell them off my uh, website. So, yeah, if anybody wants a copy, the best place to get it is from me because I think I'm cheaper than anybody uh, selling it. If you go to eBay, you'll see some, I don't know, some idiot's been selling that thing for $59 for the last five years. And I keep thinking to myself, are you an idiot? Go on the webs. You'll see I'm selling it for like $15, you know, plus postage. <laughs> and why are you charging, how do you expect to sell it for $59, you know? I don't know, but and Amazon has it. You know, they still have all, all and they have it at the original selling price, twenty nine ninety nine. You know, uh, but so my my site is the cheapest, and it gets autographed. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, they can buy it anyway. Buy it from the pub. Oh, what the hell is publishers? They forgot the state. Uh, I forgot them. Ah, I was getting groggy. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's it on the book. Um, and uh, I would love—I would have loved to have gotten a, done a second printing, because after I wrote the book, so much happened, because the book caused a whole bunch of people at conventions to invite me to the conventions, you know. Yeah, so a whole new thing opened up for me, and for like four or five years, I was not back in the business, but I was suddenly back in in circulation again after having, uh, you know been kind of sitting semi-retired, you know, and traveling a lot and with my wife. And suddenly I was uh, back in circulation. But, yeah, I, I actually put down a whole bunch of things that uh, and would like to, have, uh, you know, put a second printing with uh, an additional 20, 30 pages or something of stuff that uh, happened after after the oh, I know what happened uh, at the time of the book thing. Uh, the new Battlestar Galactica, the revised one, yeah, with Bear McCreary, and that's a whole big story of uh, of, of what happened uh, with that with the uh, stuff on that. It's a that was also a long story, and um, then there was the Knight Rider revival where they put on Knight Rider with this horrible, horrible show and at that time I, I, I got I said, Well, you know, I really don't care about doing the show. I don't want to go into this weekly grind anymore, you know. I'm getting a little old in the tooth for that, but I sure think that they should use the theme because it's one of the most well known themes on television. You know, and I'm not saying it, everybody else is saying it, you know. It's well known enough that the people in movies, Ted Three and and the Five Hundred Days of Summer, they all write reference to the Night Rider theme, and they play it. You know, so I was thinking to myself, if you're going to do this show, you got to do the Night Rider theme. Well, you you can't believe how hard it was for me to contact anybody to try to at least. I said, let me sit down and talk to you. I said, I have at least a half a dozen arrangements that people have done that are on YouTube that are really, really, you know, so completely different from the original arrangement so that if you're looking to be up to date, I've got a whole bunch of arrangements of the theme that are today, you know, which was, what was that, 2011 or 12 that that thing came out? Something like that, 2010 or 2011 or 2012. And I said, I've got a whole bunch of them. Let me play them for you or let me send them to you and you can hear how the theme works in today's, you know, setting. Nobody would talk to me. Nobody would, as I finally embarrassed the music director of of, of Universal to, to get on the phone with me because I spoke to his assistant and I said, you know, this is very embarrassing. I said, this is not like I'm some guy from the street trying to get hold of, the, you know, the, this, I, I said, I'm being very, you know, egotistical right now. I said, but this is Stu Phillips. I did like approximately 11 shows for you people, you know. I said, I'm, I'm not a stranger here. Could so finally the guy called, uh, returned my call, and I spoke to him, and he said, "Well, to tell you the truth, Stu, I have very little to do with that show. The producer is kind of like uh, he wants to close off any old reference to the old show. He doesn't want any of the people who worked on it. Or he doesn't want anything like that. He's got a new frame of mind, the way he wants to go." And so they went the way they wanted to go, which was bad. 
and the guy used two bars of the theme, <laughs> and that was it. And I don't know where they dragged up the dredged up that composer, but I, you know, I wouldn't have minded if it was. Oh well, they got Mark Snow to do it, or they got you know, or they got uh, Ted Shapiro to do it, or they got you know, they got somebody. Hey, that's life, you know, you know. But they dredged up somebody out of nowhere, and he just. Uh, <laughs> I don't even want to talk about it. It was kind of an abomination, and I was very happy when it got when it finally uh, got uh, canned, you know, and they dropped the thing. I said, "Oh, what a relief!" <laughs> so, but but it, it's unbelievable. I just sent out I just sent out uh, autographed stuff to a guy in in, in Greece. <laughs> who a fan in Greece? I mean, it's it's uh, it's kind of wild, the wild world we live in, you know. Yeah, because I I I was saying to somebody the other day, I was saying, if I I I'm better known in in in, in United Kingdom and Japan and and uh, Turkey and Greece than I am here in the United States. It's just funny. It's like. The Japanese just love that Hollywood string stuff that I did. They just, they can't put out enough. They keep re-releasing it over and over again. Yeah, I said, if I were to get off a plane in Japan, I'd be like, a, oh my God, I'd be like a rock star over there, you know, and, and, uh, and Britain and, um, and, and, and believe it or not, Belgium and Holland. Yeah, I'm very big in the Scandinavia because I did a song. I wrote a song in 1974 with the five or four from McLeod with Glenn Lawson and uh, and, and Bruce Bellin. We wrote a song for uh, for Bobby Benton to sing, and uh, she sang it in the show, and she made a re and the recording came out, and it was a flop. It was a bomb. And then in 1998, 24 years later, somebody discovered the show or discovered Bobby Benton's record and made a record a completely different uh, kind of recording they uh, tempoed it and did a whole different thing and it became a smash hit all over the world except the United States <laughs> it was unbelievable it was you know number one in in, in Denmark number one in, in, in Holland and Belgium and Germany and everything it was translated into other languages and in the United States nothing <laughs> never it's just not, nothing ever happened with it so like I said like for some reason in these countries I'm really well known and in the United States it's that's why my book says do who was that song ain't, just, ain't that just the way yes right yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey. Congr hey. Kudos. I love you, Mike. <laughs> I love you. You actually know that song. Yeah. Ain't that just the way that life goes down? And it's. It, I. I. I made more money on that song than I did on any other song of I've ever written. And and more money probably that I've ever made on uh, it would be close with the Night Rider theme, but it's pretty damn close. Yeah, it was just and uh, the cover records on that are just endless. They just keep coming, but they're all coming from Scandinavia and and uh, and uh, Denmark. Well, Denmark, Scandinavia, but Holland, which is so close, you know, uh, Scandinavian wise. And um, uh, and Belgium, <laughs> yeah, just rear that whole little string up there. It's like uh, uh, they just love that. They just love that song. So, more questioning. Not got any more questions? No, no. I have taken up so much of your time, and no, I just you haven't taken my so time. Hey, I'm a I'm a retired person here. You know, it, uh, as you can tell, I got I'll talk. I'll talk all you want to talk. But I hope I've answered all your questions. Uh, if you ask me, you know, a lot of people say, what, what was Rush Meyer like? I won't answer that question because, no, I don't think anybody knows what he was like. But I do, let me just put this thing. I will say this about Roger Ebert. You mentioned his name, and I said he never showed. As far as I know, he was never around at post-production, had nothing to do with any of that. And I never saw him during the production because I was actually on the set most of the time. 
But I will say this. When I wrote my book, I wrote to Roger Ebert, sent him an email, and I said, I'm Stu Phillips, everything else. Because we had exchanged emails earlier, Roger. And uh, so I sent him an email, and I said, would you write a something for my book? And I never heard back from him. And the book was almost ready for printing. And all of a sudden, one day, there's an email from Roger Ebert. And uh, he said, my apologies, Stu. He says, uh, I changed computers and and things happened. And actually, he was the start of him getting sick, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and he says, and I really apologize, but your email got just was in a whole batch of like a 500 unanswered emails. And I just got around. And he says, I hope it's not too late, but here it is. And as you know, in my book, there's that little thing from Roger Ebert. And he said, I hope it's not too late. And so oh God, I called the public, I called the people who were printing the book, which is in Colorado. <laughs> and I said, I've got to get this. Oh, Stu, that means we're going to have to do this and that. And we're going to have to put it on a thing. So they finally put it on what I'm using the word, but I think it's the correct word on the bastard page. I think that's what they call it. It's a blank page that separates the main page from the beginning or something that I think it's called, I think it's called a bastard page. And they said, that's the only place we can put it. I said, fine, put it there, <laughs> but it's gotta be in the, it's gotta be in the book. And so they, they put it there. So yes, uh, uh Mike, my, I had corresponded with Roger Ebert and, uh, he was a really nice person correspondence wise. He, uh, the, I did exchange a lot of early emails with him, and uh, he had said nice things about, about the music and everything else. So, yeah, my only experience with him is that he was a, a nice person <laughs> via email. Well, I got to tell you, it's almost what? Uh, almost? You can't be. You got to be kidding me. That it's almost fifty years old. That movie. Uh, Nineteen sixty-nine. Nineteen sixty-nine. All right, so let's not go crazy. So what, 47 years old, let's yeah. say. It still holds up. Those songs are still fantastic. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and I know Bob Stonewood, too, my co-writer. He's another one who said, God almighty, do we have to do this picture, Stu? I had to put my name on. And I said, Bob, I said, it's... You know, of course, nowadays, you know, this picture is 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 lightweight compared to what they make now. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is nothing. But at that time, it was just the association. He did. He wrote some good lyrics. He wrote some great lyrics on that stuff. And as I said, find it was Lynn Carey. Once I had love was the name of the song that didn't get in the movie. Once I had love. And uh, it's Lynn and Barbara Robeson, who was part of the peanut conspiracy and died, oh, God, about 10 years after she did that overdose of bad stuff. But she was she was a sweetheart. She was one of the nicest, sweetest people I'd met. But she just had a habit, had a bad one. A lot of those kids from the 60s, they just... Uh, Never got over it, uh, including some very famous, famous people that we don't have to mention on the phone.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.